Amen. So tonight's distinctive is having begun in the Spirit. Having begun in the Spirit. And I was thinking how many relationships, especially romantic relationships, they begin with the man and the woman sort of doing things correctly. Or, or at least biblically in this aspect, where the man is more than willing to sacrifice certain things in his life to win over the heart of this woman, and the woman doesn't seem to be trashing his ideas or making fun of the man or, dis- or disrespecting the man, but she seems to show respect when he least deserves it, right? Oh, he's choosing to go to Taco Bell. It's so wise of him, right? But then having begun in this way where the man is willing to sacrifice, he's willing to change his wardrobe, he's willing to change how he acts, he's willing to drive all over and do all these things he's not comfortable with to win over the heart of the woman, what happens as the marriage continues and years go on and go on and go on and go on? All of a sudden that self-sacrificing heart and attitude begins to want to protect ourselves and our identity right we create our own man cave and we say no girls allowed and we sort of want to hide in there we no longer want to just sacrifice our lives but men they begin to try to protect it as much as possible these women that would never show disrespect during the dating process or the engagement as time progresses they belittle their husbands both privately and publicly and what started off with self-sacrifice and respect has gone to another extreme as the years progress and you're not plugged into the Lord. And that's exactly what came to mind thinking about tonight's distinctive, having begun in the Spirit. Uh, Chuck Smith, he takes that from Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul tells the Galatians, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? William Barclay paraphrases it this way. He says, are you now going to try to complete your experience of God by making it dependent upon what human nature can do? Again, we know salvation is a spiritual work. It's only the Holy Spirit that can open our eyes, soften our hearts, and do this incredible work within us. But oftentimes we leave that work of the Spirit and then we try to do things in our own human strength and our own human nature and that's where things quickly go off the rails and that's exactly what happens in many churches and in many movements chuck smith in this chapter says calvary chapel is a work that was begun by the spirit every new and great movement of god is born of the spirit when we examine church history and the various great movements of god we discover that they are all born of the spirit Yet such moves of God historically seem to move from that birth in the spirit to ultimately seeking to be perfected in the flesh. This seems to be a continual cycle within church history. Movements that were once alive in the spirit become dead in ritualism. And ritualism is nothing more than a rut. And the only difference between a rut and a grave is the length and the depth We see the energies of church expended in life support systems to keep a corpse still gasping for breath. The whole purpose seems to be concentrated in not letting the movement die. 
We believe that if a program cannot survive on its own, the most merciful thing to do is to let it die. Now, Chuck Smithy goes in a couple different directions here. One scripture to keep in mind also is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. I'll just read this one for you. It says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, for our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Again, dangerous things happen when we believe that our sufficiency is in our strength, our planning, our power, our own strength and might. We have to be so careful with that. Listening to the C.C. Philly Calvary Distinctives 2, Mike Foch, he says this chapter split into two parts. First, Chuck Smith, he gives us a prophetic exhortation. Having begun in the Spirit as a movement, as a church, let us continue to be in the Spirit. And then his second point is practically, hey, how do we continue in the Spirit? And the main way how we continue in the Spirit is by not trusting in the works of the flesh. Do not trust in the works of the flesh. So, having begun in the Spirit, how can we continue in the Spirit? First and foremost, let's pay attention to the attitude of the men that God uses throughout Scripture, and He allows His power of the Holy Spirit to work on mightily on their behalf. It seems as if God always uses men who have a longer list of weaknesses and reasons why God can't use him, Versus men who will give you all the reasons why they are God's gift to earth and their list of qualifications and accolades and what they've done in the past and how now they deserve to be used by God. This is the strength of the flesh versus the power of the spirit. We can turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and the first guy we'll look at is Moses. Moses, one of my favorite Old Testament characters, used so mightily of God. And we'll see the strength of the flesh versus the power of the Spirit. If it all starts off in the Spirit, how can we continue in the Spirit? Let's pay attention to the type of men and women that God uses to pour His Spirit out and do mighty things. You're there in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is talking to God saying, I don't deserve to do this. I'm not capable enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough accolades. I can't do this in my own strength. But this is not how Moses first began his ministry in trying to free God's people. In Acts 7.25, it tells us that Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. Again, Moses begins thinking, Lord, because of my strength, because of my power, because of my studies in Egyptian schools and colleges, because of my background in the Egyptian military, because of my heritage in being in the highest of the high within Egypt, of course 
They're going to be able to see that God has chosen me to free them, right? But then what does God have to do after Moses fails to hide one Egyptian? After he fails to win over the hearts of people who are in slavery, saving a man's life, Moses then flees for his life and has to spend 40 years in the desert learning that he's a nobody. God then comes and tells him, hey, Moses, you're the guy I want to use to free my people from slavery. So now what's Moses' response 40 years later? Lord, who am I? He's no longer supposing, oh, God, of course you're going to use me. Now he's saying, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He knows Pharaoh's throne room. He grew up there. But now he's saying, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In Exodus chapter 4, the chapter next door in verse 1, it says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose that they will not believe me or listen to my voice. He goes off saying, of course they're going to listen to me. Forty years later, he's saying, God, I don't think they're going to believe me or even listen to me. Then in verse 10, Exodus chapter 4, Moses once again says, Oh Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. God, I'm not gifted. And then finally, Exodus chapter 4, verse 13, but he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Moses is saying, God, pick anyone but me. Chuck Smith says this is a good illustration of the difference between the work of the flesh and the work of the spirit. Moses at first endeavored to do the work of God in the energies of his flesh, but in his own power he couldn't even successfully bury one Egyptian. Yet when he was directed by the spirit of God, Israel succeeded in burying the whole army of the Egyptians at one moment. Again, this is the difference of trying to do things in our own flesh versus just following the working of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of you have wakeboarded before or water skied before. What kind of a boat do you want to be water skiing behind, right? A paddle boat? Is that what you want to do? It's not going to work. You're going to get out there, you're going to jump, and you're just going to sink right down, right? You want something that is power, that's already being moved, that's already in motion. And that's what we should be seeking when we want to follow God and what he's up to. It's not trying to stir it up in our own strength or in our own power, saying, God, what are you doing? And now, does Moses have a problem with self-esteem? Does Moses need a psychologist or psychiatrist, right? Moses, you could do it, you could do it, right? No, it's not about having a low view of himself and as far as self-esteem. It's just knowing in and of his own strength, he cannot do it. And I believe one of the reasons why we are so weak when it comes to prayer is because we are so self-reliant. We, we think we could do everything in our own strength. We think we can handle it by ourselves. The more helpless we realize we are, the more prone we will be to pray for absolutely everything. I was talking about it with Amanda this morning that whenever I go out of town, I find myself praying, Lord, protect the home, protect Amanda, protect the kids, protect them like crazy. And yet when I'm at home, I just fall asleep and knock out on the couch, right? Or or in the bed. Am I that great and grand of a protector? Am I the reason why no burglar has come to my house or anything like that? No, it's the work and power of God. Yet it's just self-reliance. 
It's pride truly at the end of the day. And one of the reasons why God doesn't do more in our midst or with us, one of the reasons why we don't pray more is because we are so self-reliant. We have so much pride. Moses, he's not the only one with a low view of himself and a great view of God. Jeremiah, when he's called, he tells God in Jeremiah 1.6, God, behold, I can't speak. I'm a youth. God, I'm too young to speak. Pick someone else. Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest and I'm the least in my father's house. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 Paul says, I am the least of the apostles who am I not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, he says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. So how about you? Do you think that you deserve to be used by God? Or do you say, Lord, you're going to have to pour everything out, all, all the power, all the working, all of the spirit is the only way you can do anything in my life. Chuck Smith says, when we don't have confidence in our own power, we know that if the work is going to be done, it has to be done by the Lord. When I felt the call of God on my life to the ministry, I went to Bible college and prepared myself. While in Bible college, I was senior class president, student body president, and developed an athletic program for the school. I really felt that I had an awful lot to offer. When I started out in the ministry, I was certain that I had the qualifications and the backgrounds to build a successful church anywhere. I had great confidence, but the Lord had to put me through the ringer. He allowed me to struggle for 17 years with no success. I had to work in a secular job in order to support my family so that I could stay in the ministry. And if it weren't for that sense of the call of God on my life, I would have given up. In fact, I endeavored to leave the ministry on a couple of occasions, but God brought me back. This all had to happen because of the confidence I had in my own abilities. He says here, the Lord allowed me to spend the prime years of my life failing until he finally got me to the place where I realized that I really had nothing to offer. What's your view of yourself? Do you think you come to the church and say, ah, oh, wait till they put me where I should belong, right? Wait till they put me in this ministry or that ministry. Wait till they put me leading or teaching. Is that your mindset? Or do you come say, man, I really have nothing to offer. That's what you put on the ministry application. I got nothing to offer. Wherever you want to put me, that, 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 that's fine by me, right? If you're willing to trust me in a place, I'm willing to go there. And it's a lot of humility coming from Chuck Smith that he's saying, God allowed me to spend the prime years of my life failing. Again, Randy Cahill, he was just here on Sunday. And he mentioned one interaction with Chuck. Everybody's thanking him and thanking him and thanking him. He says, Chuck, how do you keep this from going to your head? And he says, I spent 17 years learning that Chuck has a, nothing to offer. And Chuck is nothing but a failure. But with the power of God, it's all God. It's all God that adds to the church and subtracts to the church. It's all the work and the power of God that saves us. And it's only the act and power of God that makes us more and more holy and makes us look like him. And it's the only power of God that can grow the church and continue to work in our church. If we're confident in our flesh, 
if we're confident in our strength, if we're confident in our accolades, then we will be in line for the school of hard knocks. Just those 40 years in the desert having to learn, I don't know anything. In Philippians chapter 3, we can turn there. Philippians chapter 3, so interesting, Paul, someone who had a whole lot of accolades, someone that had all the qualifications, more so than any of the other apostles, yet the view he had of himself when it comes to ministry. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. How much confidence is that? None. Have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He lists them the accolades, but then what does he say in verse 7? But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. All the things that the world would say, all these accolades equal greatness in me and me being able to do great things for God. All of that I count as loss. It's rubbish. We could think of Judges chapter 7 verse 2. That man Gideon that was saying, God, you can't use me. I'm, my tribe is the smallest tribe, and my dad's family is the smallest of the smallest of the small tribe. God, you can't use me. God begins to use him, and they have a couple thousand soldiers versus 135,000 soldiers of the Midianites. And God tells Gideon in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God has to dwindle down the army of Israel down to 300 soldiers. So then God, with 300 soldiers versus 135,000 soldiers against God, is easy money, right? That's easy for God to do. But God did this in order that they wouldn't say, look at how powerful we are. Look at how strong we are, right? You've heard of Leonidas. You've heard of the 300, right? Look at the 300 in Gideon, right? That's not what it was about. It was all about the power of God. So often the Bible studies that come out when I teach and I say, Lord, that was, that was a train wreck, right? God, that was bad. Those are the ones that people come up after saying, that was so amazing, right? And it's just the Lord saying, it's not about you. It's all about the work of God's Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, Paul says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Where is your faith when it comes to Christianity? Is it in certain men and certain Bible teachers? Oh, you got to listen to this guy. You got to listen to this guy. This guy's amazing. Only when I hear this guy, ooh, then ooh, I, get, I get the goosebumps and the hair stands up on the back of my head and, and then God speaks to me. Or is your confidence and your faith in the power of God and what God is capable of doing? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul tells us that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Every, the best of men is a man at best. Every single man out there, they're going to fail you. I'm going to fail you. I'm not perfect. I'm not that great. All of this mighty thing that God does within Christianity, within churches, it's all by his power. It's all by his spirit. You look at David and his young men, the men that God brought to David to free Israel, right? The mighty men of valor. Chuck Smith says, I look at the men that God gathered around David. Everyone was in distress, in debt, and discontent. They gathered themselves to him, and he became the captain of a bunch of malcontents and losers, about 400 men. But God raised these men into a mighty armor, a mighty army. I also look at the men that God gathered around me, and I sort of chuckle as I see the ones that God has used. They're much like David's men, sort of the outcast and cast-offs of society, and yet look at what God has done. Hey, how would you feel if your pastor called you a loser in his book, right? That people are reading 30 years later. That's basically what he's doing. He's saying the great leaders, the great men within Calvary Chapel, they're a bunch of losers. But losers on God's side and doing the work of God can do mighty things. Can do mighty things. Again, a movie about Gideon before God works in him, you would say, that guy's a loser, right? That guy's a wimp. He's hiding. He's hiding in caves while the Midianites are taking all of their food and stealing from them. This is how God moves in men. He takes the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, in order to confound the wise. Having begun in the Spirit, how can we continue in the Spirit? Another way we can do this is by following the moving of the Spirit instead of our own hard work, our own planning, and our own motion or commotion. Right? We talked about which boat do you want to be water skiing behind. Many men will sit down and pick a target audience. They'll, they'll look and they'll take a bunch of demographics and they say, hey, this city is a huge city and there's no big church here. We're going to move in here and make the biggest church that the world has ever seen. Some men, they'll sit down and they'll pick a target audience. They'll say, hey, what kind of people do we want in our church? Hey, you know what? I think God has called me to only minister to a bunch of rich and wealthy people, right? And I'm only going to minister to those types of people. There are other people who say, hey, you know what? We're going to do church in the club so that we could get club people in our church, right? There are many ministries that they try to sit down and in their own strength and planning, they try to pick what their church is going to look like. And who's going to come to their church? We can be reminded of Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. That it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It would be so much wiser for many churches and ministries to pray, wait, and watch. And say, Lord, where are you moving within our city? Lord, where are you moving within my sphere of influence? God, are you moving at work? Maybe I should do a Bible study on my lunch break. Maybe I should do a Bible study after work, inviting people at work. God, are you moving in my baseball team? Lord, are you moving in my underwater basket weaving club? Lord, that's where I should be starting a Bible study. I don't know if any of you are in an underwater basket weaving club, right? But you should stay, take a step back and say, Lord, where are you moving? Instead of just looking at, hey, 
what's cool, who has a Bugatti, who has a Rolex, right? That's who I want at my church. No, we should take a step back and say, Lord, who are you calling? Who are you drawing unto you? And if you don't see where God is moving, just be faithful to whatever is in front of you, and then he will show you. Again, David became the greatest king that Israel had ever seen until we see Jesus because of how faithful he was with his father's sheep. You can think of Luke 16, verse 10, how Jesus says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Chuck Smith did not sit down and have a vision meeting in his small church and say, You know what? We're going to be the church of the hippies. He, he didn't sit down and say, hippies are going to become our target audience. Here's a 10-year plan of hippies and tents with hippies. And then we'll send out the hippies to get more hippies. And then 10 years later, we'll have 500 churches. And then we'll have a radio station that covers both of Southern California, a large Bible college, a large conference center, and our own camp in the mountains. No, he just stayed faithful and desired that anyone that God would bring to his church or his ministry would be the most loved and the best taught people out there. He sought to be faithful in whatever God put in front of him. And because of that faithfulness, God decided in God's planning and in God's work to bring more and more people there. So one problem within churches is that we try to, by our own flesh, we try to plan out and work towards what we want God to do. Instead of taking a step back and being faithful in whatever God has put in front of us and allowing God to do whatever he wants to do with that. Another great issue is when we place our identity in where we serve and in what we're doing for Jesus. Because when our identity is wrapped in how we serve and what we do for Jesus, then we're prone to hold on to some things far longer than we should be holding on to. And we also could be very quick to get rid of things far quicker than we should. Because we think it's below us. Our identity is too great and this is below us. This issue really reveals itself when seasons change and we're trying to cling to the past and what the Spirit was doing a season or two seasons ago. We've all seen that incredible athlete, that incredible singer. And instead of retiring in their prime, what do they do? They hold on and they hold on and they hold on and they hold on and they retire eight times, right? And every year in Sports Center, there's a special about them retiring. And then six months later, it's about them coming out of retirement. It's like trying to super glue the leaves that are falling off your tree. It's like keeping that high school uniform that you haven't worn in 20 years and then trying to wear it and go out and play once again. It's like taking your dead pet to a taxidermist and saying, hey, I want to keep him around so I can look at him, right? I don't want to let go of this season. But many Christians do this. God is changing. God is doing a new work, a new thing, and we just hold on to the past. Like if we have a dead pet at a taxidermist. Again, it doesn't look right. It doesn't smell right. And it's been said the last thing to go is the person's actual place and position within that church or within that ministry. Their mind is gone. Their heart is gone. Their desire is gone. Their excitement is gone. And then the last thing to go is the actual person. It's just like a tree with leaves. The last thing to go is the actual leaf to fall off. 
That leaf has been dead for a long time, and then it's days and days later where it finally falls off. That's why Chuck Smith says, we believe that if a program cannot survive on its own, the most merciful thing to do is to let it die. We trust God with such great and grand things. Do you ever stress out about the sun moving and getting closer to earth? Do you ever stress out about an earthquake hitting Miami or anything like that? Do we stress out about our salvation or if heaven is there or what's with hell or all these things? No, we trust God completely with that. And yet when a new season comes, when a new chapter starts or the last chapter closes, why do we have such great difficulty in trusting God, saying, God, whatever you want to do, let's go for it. I trust you with my eternity, but I don't trust you with this small change in my life. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. We could think of Job in Job 1, verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. At the end of the day, who does the church belong to? It belongs to Jesus Christ. Who's the one that adds and subtracts to the church? Jesus Christ. So if Jesus finds it fit to close a chapter within a church or ministry, or start a new chapter or church or ministry, are we really going to try to delay it or get in the way of it? Or are we going to say, God, this belongs to you at the end of the day. This is your church. This is your ministry. Lord, what you see fit, that is what I want to be a part of. My identity is not in senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Miami. My identity is Zach, son of God, brother of Jesus Christ. I'm not the actual son of God, right? I'm just one of the sons of God, right? That's other churches, other ministries. We won't get into that. Different teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Again, we trust God with our eternity. We trust God with so much. Do we have to hold on to the hose saying, God, I got to be the one watering. It has to be me. This is, this is my identity. I am the hose holder, Lord. Or do you say, God, maybe it's his turn. Maybe it's their turn. Lord, I want, I want to pass the baton. Lord, I want to pass the mantle. Lord, I want to create more people to do what I was doing. Where are we at? How do we trust God when he's opening a new door and a new season. Let's, let's trust Him. Let's follow the Spirit and how the Spirit is leading. Having begun in the Spirit, how can we continue in the Spirit? 
we should remember that man's qualifications and or credentials do not equal God's calling. Just because a man has the qualifications or credentials of man and mankind does not mean that they have God's calling in their life. God seems to enjoy working with fixer-uppers. You look through all the, all the scripture, it seems like that's God's thing, right? He just loves working with fixer-uppers. Yet when we come to a church or a ministry or we're looking for, God, who have you called me to disciple? What are we usually looking for? Perfect finished products, right? We're looking for these perfect people to disciple so that they could like just do everything we tell them to do. But it doesn't work that way. God enjoys working with fixer-uppers. Chuck Smith in this chapter says, When Jesus called his disciples, he chose a f- many fishermen and a tax collector. He didn't go to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and say, Gamaliel, who are your sharpest and finest students? He went to the Sea of Galilee and called these fishermen. So Calvary Chapel is not the first time that God has used society's cast-offs to do a wonderful work. But it's interesting and somewhat sad that once God begins to use us, we start looking for reasons why God would use us. And we try to become perfected in our flesh. We try to find some pride in it. Before, when we were deadbeats and losers, whoa, God wants, I can't believe God wants to use me. Then there's somewhat of a following. God's doing something. There's some protection there. And then we're looking for a reason why God has to use us. It has to be us. We can think of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, how God has to remind Samuel that God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We mentioned earlier 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. If you're close by, you could turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why does God do this? Why does God pick the foolish? Why does God pick the weak? Why does God pick the unwise? Why does he do this? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It seems as if God enjoys doing mighty work in men and women within church, within ministry, within history, that the rest of mankind takes a step back and they're just in wonder. They're just in awe. How could you do this with that person? And then all the glory goes to the Lord. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Chuck Smith says, I've been accused of being an intellectual. Even Calvary Chapel is often branded as anti-intellectual. I suppose I'm guilty of this, but I don't apologize for it. I believe in education. My own life has been a life of study. And even the Bible tells us, In 2 Timothy 2.15, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
I believe that God uses human instruments and he prepares the instruments that he uses. I believe that it's important to be prepared in the word of God, but not from a purely natural humanistic standpoint. True education doesn't come from the wisdom of the world, but by the guidance and the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's one thing that's very special within Calvary Chapel that the pastors or if you send someone to go plant a new church, they don't have to have a doctorate. They don't have to have gone to seminary and different things like that. Now is seminary or knowledge in and of itself evil or sinful? Not at all. But for us to think that God can only use or he's going to extra use someone that has that qualification or that piece of paper within a church, is, it's foolishness. Then we are trusting in the flesh of mankind. Some of the guys that started off as uh, drug users, right? Then God saves them, frees them from their drugs, frees them from their homelessness, and God does mighty things in them. They afterwards went out and got their doctorates. They got degrees. They did all this seminary studies. And Chuck Smith, he jokes around. He says, well, if you guys can just go to school and get enough education, you can probably reduce the sizes of your churches to more manageable sizes. Because God likes to use the foolish and the weak things of this world. And then oftentimes we try to, in our own flesh, say, this is why God's going to use me. Or God's going to use me even more because of what I've done. Now, should we study? Should we love the Lord our God with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind? Absolutely. We should be studying. But now we should not just trust because I've studied so much. Now, of course, God is going to use me even more than the person next to me that perhaps they can't study as much. Perhaps they're not as smart as I am. That's when we are trusting in our flesh. God loves to use totally unqualified people like us. That's what Chuck Smith says. Again, how much humility is there? A man who's writing a book, and he's not a how-to book, how to start a movement, how to see a mighty work of God, how to do this, how to do that. No, he's saying God uses totally unqualified people like us. He fills us with his spirit, and then he does a mighty work through us that astounds and baffles this world. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God or in your flesh? I think something that may be even more applicable to some of us is they're saying, God, you cannot use me because I haven't done X, Y, or Z. Or, God, you can't use me because, Lord, look at who I am. I'm such a dork or I'm such an idiot or whatever the case may be. God wants to use you, but are you just willing and humble and able? Saying, Lord, whatever you put in my hand, I'm going to be faithful to it. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Again, where do you like to place yourself in the grand scheme of smart people and absolutely bottom of the barrel, right? Here Jesus is saying, Lord, I thank you. Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent. And Lord, you've revealed them to babies. And this is what God does in choosing the disciples. Would you really, would any of us pick the disciples? 
It's so funny reading through the Gospels. Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to resurrect. God, I still don't get it, right? What do, you, what do you mean, Lord? What are you talking about, right? Uh, I have food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I have food that you know, not know of. All the disciples look at each other. Hey, who bought him food? How did he get food, right? Uber Eats doesn't exist yet. How did this guy get food, right? You look at the disciples, and they're not smart at all, right? At all. And yet that's who God chooses to begin this great work. And it goes from the disciples, and there are many other great pastors that never went to seminary or higher education. A.W. Tozer, Charles Spurgeon, many great Calvary Chapel pastors, they had no extra education. And yet some of these very men are the ones who later on start their own seminaries and universities. Again, it's just the power of God. He loves to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 It says, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your health? Who gave you the vision that you have, the the power within your nervous system and your muscles to be able to write, to think and comprehend? If it's all God, who are we to boast about anything? All the glory needs to go to the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God, he warns the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 through 19, he warns them. He says, then you say in your heart, it's been my power and my, the might of my hand that, I've gained, that have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it, is, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. Again, all the glory has to go to the Lord. It's not our own strength. It's not our own credentials. It's not our own wisdom. Now, is university in and of itself sinful to all the students here? No, it is not. No matter how many times you tell your parents or pick these scriptures, right? No, man-made credentials are not inherently evil. But the great danger for us is for a man to think, once I've achieved this credential, once I get that accolade, then I'll be more qualified to be a pastor or a leader or serve within a specific ministry. We can think of the leaders in Israel arguing that they are just as qualified and capable of hearing from God and leading the nation of Israel as Aaron and Moses were. So how does God deal with them? He tells Moses, grab, Randy talked about this on Sunday, right? Grab from each leader of each tribe, the 12 tribes, grab their staff and put it in the temple. And the rod that you take out afterwards that is bearing fruit and bearing life, that is the man I've called to lead the people. Now, was Aaron qualified? Did Aaron have good experience to lead the people of God? Not at all, right? One of my least favorite characters in the Old Testament, right? Moses, I don't know what happened. I just got the gold. I threw it in there and a calf came out, right? I don't know what happened, right? Again, not qualified, terrible leader. And yet God was giving the increase and the fruit and the life, spiritual life, was flowing 
out of Aaron. It has nothing to do with qualifications or accolades. God's calling upon a man will bear spiritual fruit and spiritual life in his life and in the people that he's ministering to. It's the difference between God's wisdom. That's what a godly leader needs. A godly leader needs God's wisdom versus man's knowledge. A godly leader needs God's love versus man's universities and accolades and things like that. And a man that God's going to use needs aptness and skill within the Word of God. All throughout First and Second Timothy and Titus, a man that's going to be used by God has to be apt to teach. Someone who can divide the Word of God in a right and just manner. And that does take studying and practice. It's not flying by the seat of your pants. No, it's putting in the hard work. But at the end of the day, the increase can only come from the Lord. One last scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Again, if a ministry is going to really grow and God's going to continue to work in it, it's not going to be about head knowledge. It's going to be about the love of God flowing in and through them. First, second, third John, how do we know that God's love is flowing in and through us? We're going to obey God's word. We're going to love his word. And we're going to love God's people. That's how we're going to know that we love God. So what's the conclusion of all this, right? What is the distinctive of Calvary Chapel? The distinctive is that we believe that God works supernaturally in supernatural ways. God loves to do his supernatural work in very natural ways. Our church and our fellowship of churches was birthed in a supernatural, natural way by the work of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't man's planning. It wasn't man's studying. It wasn't man's conniving. No, it was just being faithful in the little things, being holy as he is holy, and allowing God to do his work. The church, the location of the church, the ministries at the church, who serves where in the church. It's all about God doing it in his timing in a very natural way. So many of the people who work at the church now, it's not that we planned. It's not that we put an ad out there. It's, hey, who's naturally serving at church? Who has a love for the Lord? Yeah, I think they might want to work at church, right? That's just the way it works. Who should we put to work at the school? Oh, these, this person hates kids. I think God wants to put them to work at the school. No, it doesn't work that way, right? Sometimes we have that fear. I don't want to tell God that I want him to use me because I hate traveling and he's going to make me travel, right? It doesn't work that way. God's going to give us right, the desires of our heart as they line up with him. We're going to go through difficulty. We're going to go through turmoil. But if you absolutely can't handle public speaking, if you faint every time you, pub you speak publicly, God's probably not going to call you to be a pastor the next day. Maybe a year later, five years later, ten years later. But that's not going to be step one. 
So if God has started our church in very simple and in very humble ways, let's continue to allow God to grow and mature our church in very simple and very humble ways by the people within the church staying simple and staying humble. So Lord, we just thank you. Thank you, God, just, just for the power of your spirit, Lord, that you take, uh, Lord, you take a person like me, God, and just what you are willing to do, Lord. Take so many of us, Lord, who we once were before we came to know you, Lord, who we still are today apart from you, God. Help us to not forget about that, Lord. Help us to not be like Samson, Lord, thinking we can do this in our own strength and your grace and mercy is going to come in just like every other time, only to fall on our faces, God. Lord, help us to stay small in our own eyes, Lord. Help us to stay humble, Lord. Help us to continue to allow your spirit to lead us and guide us, Lord. May it not be about our wisdom, our strength, Lord, our might, our planning. Lord, may we just follow you and where you're moving, where you're working, God. That's where we want to be, God. So, Lord, free us from any man boasting here, Lord, any woman boasting here, Lord. Keep each of us humble under you, Lord. Help us to be mindful of what you've done for us, God, what you're doing for us today, Lord, and what you still have planned for each and every one of us, Lord. So, God, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.